This is the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on global development. As we're back in action, happy and a bit fatigued after a week of celebrations for the end of 2014, we thought we'd take you on a journey into the year ahead to discover what will be on the radar in the year to come and why this year will be a crucial one for climate development goals and light. We spend more than 700 billion US dollars per year on fossil fuel subsidies. Um, if one can reduce them in a socially acceptable way, then a lot of money is free to do additional things. Actually, more money than is really necessary to uh, move towards a safe uh, climate. It's going to be even more important for the sustainable development goals. At the moment, the proposal is 17 goals and 169 targets, which is almost impossible to execute. And so you really need to focus on executing clusters of those thematically and working on measuring success. So these are deep rural areas where there's, there's no electricity nearby. And the main pains are the, the cost of kerosene lighting and also traveling uh, long, really long distances just to charge your phone. So some, some simple basic energy access requirements that solar power meets quite well. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. Well, last month saw 2014's last big appointment for the international community in the Peruvian capital, Lima. Delegates from 195 countries came together to discuss climate change and take a step further in the response. Well, multimedia producer Lou Del Bello flew to Lima and reported from there. She's now in the studio with me to tell me more. Hello there, Lou. Hi, John. So, Lou, why is 2015 so important for the global climate? Well, for a very simple reason. For the first time, the international climate negotiations will produce a legally binding agreement for emission reduction. While in the past years, the agreement being discussed at COP were voluntary, so countries could decide to comply or not. In 2015, the parties will agree on an international plan that will be compulsory for everyone. And the goal will be to reduce emissions and share responsibility for climate change, each country working within their own capacity. This plan will come into force in 2020, so in five years' time. That's a big change. And what was the Lima Conference take-home message, we might say? Mm, good question. I guess the most controversial outcome was a five-page draft where the parties involved confirmed some of the commitments taken in 2013. For example, on helping countries hit hardest by natural disasters or sea level rise. That's the so-called loss and damage mechanism. But the draft failed to address other crucial questions. For example, it requests countries to declare their national commitments on mitigation and adaptation, but doesn't really explain how they can compare the result one to another. So I guess that despite some encouraging signs in support of most vulnerable countries, the take-home message here is really for nations to start working independently on their own goals and in Paris at the end of the year, will take stock of what they were able to plan. So there isn't really a clear roadmap for 2015 or beyond? Not from policymakers, and at least not from this meeting. But I spoke to Nicolas Huner. He's a scientist at the New Climate Institute, a research organisation working to find solutions for climate change response. 
And the new Climate Institute released a report on how the future international climate agreement could look like. Here's what he said. Countries are negotiating here uh, a new agreement to be adopted in December 2015. And uh, they speak a lot about many details and sometimes they forget the big picture. And with this proposal we present how this big picture could look like. What are the challenges that you have identified during your work? All countries are active on climate change and it may in the end, uh, if you put if you add it all up, what countries are doing may not be sufficient to uh, keep climate change at safe levels. And so the main challenge is to incentivize countries to do an extra step, to do a little bit more than they have proposed right now. And that is the fundamental challenge. In our proposal, we say that countries come forward with their ideas on how much they want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. These proposals are then assessed and evaluated and uh, for example there are country specific recommendations of what countries could do more and then the countries evaluate that and hopefully come up with a even more ambitious proposal on how much they can do in the future. Do you think there should be an international regulation to put this work at a country level in a global framework? Um, the idea is here, well, it's, countries come together internationally and it's very difficult to force countries to do something. So that's why the new International Climate Agreement is really built on countries coming forward with their own ideas. Um, so what is really important is not necessarily that this is legally binding on an international level, but that it is implemented in the countries with domestic legislation. That's the ultimate objective. And whether that's whether countries have a legally, internationally legally binding commitment, that is not so important. Can you give us an idea of one project that could be implemented in a difficult context such as in the developing world? Um, a typical example would be a lot of developing countries have problem with electrification in rural areas and there's now technology available uh, uh, relatively uh, cheap with renewable energy to uh, have this uh, electrification done. And uh, a country could come forward with, an, with this proposal to do the electrification, 100% electrification with renewables and could even ask for support from the international community to do this. Looking at the latest data released by the International Energy Agency and by the IPCC, we see that there will be need of really a major effort in emission reductions and adaptation. So how big would be the effort required to countries to implement new measures? Is it really feasible or is something that we have to do but we have little chance of success? It's definitely feasible. So we have the technological options and uh, it doesn't even have to be too expensive. In many cases it's, it's even the opposite. You can save a lot of money. Uh, one primary example is uh, fossil fuel subsidies. We spend more than 700 billion US dollars per year on fossil fuel subsidies. Um, if one can reduce them in a socially acceptable way, then a lot of money is free to do additional things. Actually, more money than is really necessary to uh, move towards a safe uh, climate. On the other hand, we know that the cost of keeping the carbon and keeping fossil fuels in the ground is very high. And recent figures state the cost of the so-called stranded asset at around 300 billion 
dollars. So how do we convince big companies to keep their assets in the ground instead of burning them? That is definitely a fundamental problem. I mean, the first thing that you have to do is not build any more assets that, uh, that may end up as stranded assets. So from now on, do not build any further coal-fired power plants, for example, without uh, carbon capture and storage. And already now, think about an infrastructure that is also uh, compatible with a climate-safe uh, environment. So that is the very first important thing that needs to be done. And then the second one is, indeed, those um, assets uh, may, be, may be lost or may be devaluated. An important aspect there is that at least half of those are in the hands of governments and not of the private sector. So if the governments choose to do something about them, they can. So considered all the challenges that we've been looking at, if you had to pick one important priority for 2015 to bring to Paris, which would it be? From my point of view, it's the, the combination of countries coming forward with ambitious proposals on how much they want to do, plus uh, other countries putting um, yeah, money on the table to help them to achieve that goal. And this balance between countries willing to do something and other countries willing to help them to do something, that is the most important thing that needs to happen in, in the run-up to the Paris conference at the end of next year. Well, that was Nicholas Hooner of the New Climate Institute talking to our Lou Del Bello at the 20th UN Conference of Parties in Lima in Peru. Well, stay with us to discover more about the year ahead in science and development. Other than being the year of big climate goals, 2015 is the United Nations Year of Light and Light-Based Technologies. Imogen Mathers has been finding out more about it and joins me now. Imogen, what is the Year of Light-Based Technologies all about? Well, the UN has proclaimed 2015 the International Year of Light and Light-Based Technologies. So throughout the year, they're going to be running debates and events and bringing together different people involved in working on light-based technologies for sustainable development. So how is SciDev going to be covering some of this uh, this year? So SciDevNet is going to be looking at a huge range of different light science and light-based technologies that are being developed for use in low-income countries. So this could be anything from solar energy projects in off-grid communities and rural health facilities to the use of things like blue light technology for newborn babies. And something I'll be particularly involved in is a new series looking at light tech innovators and their projects. So over the course of the year, we'll be talking to researchers and entrepreneurs who are working on light tech projects that aim to harness the power of light for use in low-income countries. So we want to find out about the technology they're working on, what needs it meets, and the process involved in getting this tech from the lab to the communities who need it. So uh, who have you been speaking to so far? So in the first of the interviews, I spoke to Siten Mandalia, who is the co-founder of a project called Solaris. And Solaris is developing technology that provides mobile charging stations to rural off-grid communities in sub-Saharan Africa. He told me about the different goals of providing rural energy and how this will be used to boost rural businesses, such as farmers who need mobile technology to sell their produce. The basic concept is to provide energy access to off-grid Africans via empowering entrepreneurs 
to charge lamps and phones for their local community. So give them the, the tools, the, the products, and we provide a, a service to help them uh, grow their business and provide this electrification services. So these are deep rural areas where there's, there's no electricity nearby and the main pains are the, the cost of kerosene lighting and also traveling uh, long, really long distances just to charge your phone. So some, some simple basic energy access requirements that solar power meets quite well. Only problem is that the, the cost, upfront cost of the, the kit normally is prohibitive. So with Solaris, it's pay-as-you-go which is provided by the technology. And because we provide this service to help our entrepreneurs to, to set this business up, it means they can do it uh, without any technical difficulties either. Solar power inherently is new and it requires some knowledge of, of how the energy works. So we provide that and it, and it seems to work really well. Now, how does the actual technology work? Well, Solaris uses mobile charging stations that run off solar energy. And the idea is that local communities rent this, these mobile charging stations. Um, and through some fairly unusual and innovative pay-as-you-go features, users can monitor how they use the technology and what their changing needs might be. And Solaris can get data that enables them to see how communities need it. So it's uh, solar-powered, it's solar-powered kit. So it comes with a 20-watt solar panel, a battery uh, for backup, and an array of USB ports that you would connect any number of devices to. But the main demand we're seeing is for um, the charging of phones and charging of USB-compatible LED lights that we provide as well. The pay-as-you-go feature that you mentioned, is that something that is quite unique to your project? It's unique to probably about five to ten uh, companies in our space. So it's, it's still pretty nascent within the industry. And the way that we carry it out is unique um, because there are many ways you can do a pay-as-you-go service, but we use um, text messages to carry out our procedure. Text messages, our own servers, our own in-house technology to carry it out. It does deliver a unique service and it give us, gives us that feedback of data all included um, without any complications. The, the method of, of payments works with our own SMS server that's based in Tanzania, but can be ported to any, any location in the world. It has a, a GSM network and it accepts a unique code that is generated by each Solaris unit. Um, and this unit, this unique code uh, contains our data um, that has been collected within each unit. And then this is processed by servers. Um, it tells us how much the user wants to top up by, uh, wants to increase its activity duration by. And uh, our server sends it, them a message suggesting how much they need to pay based on their balance that is stored within our, our databases. Uh, and then they make the required payment via the mobile payment service. And then they get a, an activation code with it, which they um, use to reactivate their units. And what about training, mentorship, this kind of thing? Yeah, training and mentorship are absolutely central to the project, as are partnerships with local NGOs working in similar sectors to Solaris. The model is the mentors go around and introduce 
the, the the facilities and how it works and are paid on commission when they get a lead when they get an entrepreneur who's who's interested in, in, in getting involved in the business then the delivery is made of of the kit and they get an induction program and they they get a, a free week's worth of charging facility um, after that week then the unit can be topped up with either a week or two weeks or a month's worth of further activation for, for their for their charging needs and they can pay that via via phone via their mobile payment systems or via cash with a mentor so then they can continue doing this and all the while the mentor would come back and keep in contact with that entrepreneur to make sure that they're using the the equipment as they should be and help them with their business needs in terms of you know marketing or customer management etc and the mentors are where where do they come from uh, so we recruit them directly within the local region in terms of ensuring that products meet the needs of communities and that side of things how do you go about monitoring how effective it is and how how it could be adapted or changed one of the ways we do it is via our mentors so they collect data every time they visit the entrepreneurs and uh, we try and have, have a plan of feedback throughout the process so it's not just for a piloting and then we leave it there but it's part of the business plan to continue doing feedback as our product quantities grow and in fact each Solaris unit gives us data back um, that we can analyze the performance of that entrepreneur and the the amount they've been able to charge in terms of lighting or phones um, for their local community so we can say how many lights have been charged and therefore how much kerosene has been offset for example and are there any groups which are a priority um, in these projects? Yeah, they've also been focusing on how to ensure that women have access to the technology and to the business opportunities that Solaris provides. So they've been partnering with other NGOs focusing on women's energy and livelihood needs. And they have plans to do more of this in the future, particularly as it expands into different countries. What we do with all of our entrepreneurs is we when we register them, we take some key details about the profile of each entrepreneur. So this can ensure that we, we know what age range, what gender, what type of situation each of our entrepreneurs are in. Um, so that's how we can ensure that um, women benefit as well as, as men. In the past, we have worked with organisations such as Kenya Women's Finance Trust and Smiling Through Light that uh, support women entrepreneurs um, specifically. And... Uh, what we would like to do in the future is look at how Solaris, the pay-as-you-go empowerment model that we're implementing in Tanzania, can be used within their organisations to, to do the same um, partnering with them. Great, so they're working in Tanzania right now? Yep, they piloted the project in Malawi first of all and they're now working in Mwanza in Tanzania. And the plan is that they'll expand across further countries in sub-Saharan Africa over the next few years. And in terms of the SciDev.net series on light tech innovators, this will be running throughout the whole of 2015? Yes, that's the plan. We'll be publishing a monthly multimedia feature on different light tech innovators from across the world over the course of the year. And the full interview with Siten and photographs of his Solaris project in action will be available next week on the SciDevNet website. Well, thanks, Imogen, for taking us through some of SciDev.net's plans for the Year of Light. Sounds illuminating. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure.
Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on global development. This year, we brace ourselves and take stock of the progress of the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs. And in the studio with me now is SciDev.net editor Kaz Janowski to tell us more. Kaz, why is 2015 really significant for the MDGs? Well, 2015, John, is when the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs, and there were eight of them, uh, come to an end, and they're going to be replaced by what have been come to be called the Sustainable Development Goals, or the SDGs. Can you remind us what the Millennium Development Goals were, and what the Sustainable Development Goals are going to be? Okay, well, the Millennium Development Goals, there were eight of them. Eradicate extreme poverty and hunger, achieve universal primary education, promote gender equality and empower women, reduce child mortality rates, improve maternal health, combat HIV AIDS, malaria and other diseases, and ensure environmental sustainability. And finally, develop global partnership for development. So have these been successful? By and large, they've been successful. Experts say that yes, there's been progress definitely made, for example, in uh, the eradication of poverty and hunger. We're not seeing the same terrible famines that we used to see. Uh, they've certainly been successful in reducing child mortality rates and also in improving maternal health. And there's no question about the, the fact that HIV AIDS is largely under control. It's thought to be something which is going to devastate the human population. And malaria and other diseases are also, we're seeing a lot of progress in vaccines and in treatment of those uh, particular uh, conditions. So yes, most of them have been successfully dealt with. Now the Sustainable Development Goals, who have you been talking to about that? Okay, so the Sustainable Development Goals, there are more of those. There are going to be about 17 and they're going to be announced towards the end of 2015. And I was in Muscat in Oman at the TWAS conference, TWAS being the World Academy of Sciences, and I spoke to Peter Singer. Peter Singer is the Chief Executive Officer of Grand Challenges Canada. And Grand Challenges Canada, in his words, is all about bold ideas with big impact in global health. And he was particularly uh, interested in talking to me about the Millennium Development Goal number eight, the one that is develop global partnership and development. And he says that that goal has not, in his opinion, been particularly successfully addressed. And it's the one that focuses on execution. So not so much coming up with a goal initially, but actually how you carry the goal through to completion through partnerships globally. If execution was important for the Millennium Development Goals, there were eight goals. It's going to be even more important for the Sustainable Development Goals. At the moment, the proposal is 17 goals and 169 targets, which is almost impossible to execute. And so you really need to focus on executing clusters of those thematically and working on measuring success. And, and that's one of the lessons of the MDGs, particularly a focus on accountability and measurement that was most obvious in Women and Children's Health with the Accountability Commission that was co-chaired by the Canadian Prime Minister and the Tanzanian President and a serious measurement of, uh, of success. 
But overall, in the sustainable development goals, we've been focused 90% strategy development, maybe 10% strategy execution. And at some point soon, we'll need to reverse that focus if we actually want to reach the goals. Can I pick you up on the grand challenges approach to innovation? What would that mean to the layman? So the sustainable development goals are about the what. Here's the targets you want to reach. Innovation is about the how, how you reach it. And the Grand Challenges approach to innovation has just a few central features. Number one, it's about innovation with impact. Number two, it is uh, open, competitive, and transparent. Number three, it is really focused on making a difference for the poor. So in the four and a half years since Grand Challenges Canada was uh, founded, we have uh, supported about 637 innovations in being implemented in 70 or 80 countries um, and we know that they've reached uh, 1.2 million people with just less than 20 percent of them reporting saved thousands of lives and improved tens of thousands more um, uh, one of the lessons has been that applying a venture capital approach to innovation actually is a great way to mitigate the risk of investments and what i mean by that is funding lots and lots and lots and lots of projects at proof of concept where the question is hey this is a cool idea could it work let's see if it works let's see if it reaches its goal um, fund lots of those but then be very selective about which of those one makes follow-on investments and those investments can be one to two million as you transition to scale and more later and so we support maybe 10 percent of the proof of concept pipeline to transition to scale and that really is a way to pick the best innovations that are already achieving results. Um, the Cambodian fish is an example of one of the models we found uh, these innovations scaling on and the model is that of social enterprise and so this is a, um, a graduate student actually from Canada went to Cambodia saw the problem of iron deficiency anemia it's a terrible problem in women and children's health and, and keeps children listless and not learning in school and uh, makes women susceptible to dying in childbirth if they if, if they bleed um, and uh, he noticed that uh, the cooking pots had changed from iron to aluminum He'd wondered if that had an effect on iron deficiency anemia. He found a way to take actually an iron ingot, put it in a cooking pot, and show the iron levels of uh, the whole family actually who ate out of that cooking pot had increased. But what he found was nobody was actually buying the iron ingots, and if they were distributed, they'd be used as doorstops or they'd be used on a bookcase. So then he went back into Cambodian folklore. Uh, found a legend of a lucky fish with a little smile, started casting these iron in ingots in the form of uh, that Cambodian folktale. That's why it's called Lucky Iron Fish. Founded a social enterprise, and this year he intends to manufacture and distribute 10,000 of them to combat the problem of iron deficiency. This is a simple innovation, and it illustrates one of the models of scaling, which is through a social enterprise. Namely, uh, it's an enterprise, could be a for-profit or not-for-profit. It primarily has a social goal, in this case reducing iron deficiency anemia, saving the lives of women and children. But it is on a quasi-commercial basis. He's actually selling these at a low cost. It also illustrates, I think, um, another really important feature that we call integrated innovation. You need to look at the science and technology and the social innovation and the business innovation together that's how things scale. So here you've got some science and technology. He's measured the iron levels in blood as a result of uh, you know eating out of pots with these uh, fish in it. 
you've got some business innovation in the sense of founding a social enterprise and marketing and selling. And uh, most interestingly, you've got some social innovation. It's a great example of how nobody actually wanted to use one of these things when they were shaped as ingots. But as soon as they were consistent with the culture and shaped in the form of this Cambodian legend with the lucky smiling iron fish, they were selling like what we would call in the UK hotcakes. Uh, so uh, his motto became a fish in every pot. So this is a good example of one model of scaling through social enterprise, and there are others through domestic governments, with small companies, with large companies that are socially oriented. And it's also a good example of integrated innovation, which um, we hypothesize is actually a precondition for scaling and sustainability. So that was Peter Singer talking to Kazinovsky in Muscat in Oman. Kaz, that sounds just the sort of project that SciDev are going to be looking at uh, in 2015. Well, I think the lucky fish is an extraordinary example of what Peter describes as successful innovation. And it can just show how a very, very simple initiative that looks at community response, that looks at science, and that looks at technology and science methods can be so useful in making sure that the sustainable development goals that we're all really kind of hoping are going to make a huge difference uh, in the next 15 years or so um, are going to really come to fruition. Kazinovsky, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, John. Well, that's all for now, but stay connected with SciDev.net's team for more news and analysis on the latest science for development. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud and YouTube. So until next month, Bye-bye from all of us here.